ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. Pill testing of illicit drugs in Canberra. Could it save lives? We've tested probably over a 1,000 samples now in the 12 months and a lot of information has gone to people. Around 10 to 15% are discarding their substances on finding what's actually in them. This is having a quite a measurable positive public health outcome. That's coming up on The Law Report. First, next Saturday, Australians will vote in a referendum to recognise First Nations people in the Constitution and to create a voice to Parliament which would advise on laws and policies relating to Indigenous people. Professor Antwumi is a constitutional law expert at Sydney University and a member of the constitutional expert group that advised on the referendum proposal. Antwumi, what's your message to voters? The most important thing is to give an informed vote. The Constitution gives a responsibility to us, to all the Australian people, the ultimate responsibility as to who gets to decide whether or not it's changed. And we need to take that seriously. So don't follow the line of don't know, vote no, because that's telling you to give an uninformed vote. What you need to do is whether you vote yes or whether you vote no, it needs to be an informed vote so that you are genuinely fulfilling your responsibilities under the Constitution. I mean, referendums happen pretty rarely, so I think we can at least dedicate enough of our time to make sure that we give a genuine vote. So what powers would a voice to Parliament have? Well, the amendment itself gives one, you might call it a power or a freedom. What it says is that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. But the government would not need to accept the advice provided by The Voice, would it? No, no. So all The Voice gets to do is make representations to Parliament or the executive government. It can do either or both. And um, in making a representation, you just say what your view is. There's nothing in the amendment. There is not a single word in the amendment that imposes any obligation on the government to do what the voice says or even consult the voice in advance or any of those sorts of things. Um, It solely focuses on the voice itself saying, this is what you can do. You can make representations. You may make them. You're not obliged to. You may make representations. There's no obligation on the other side. That's a matter for parliament and the government. And remembering also that this is, of course, subject to the rest of the constitution. So the rest of the constitution gives legislative power to parliament. It gives executive power to the executive. It gives judicial power to the judiciary. Right? All of that remains the same. The democratic process remains the same. So it's always, Parliament is always free to choose to make the legislation that it wants to do. The voice will not in any way constrain when or how or what Parliament enacts. So a lot of these sorts of arguments that float around come from a misunderstanding of the Constitution and how it works. Okay, but we don't know what form the voice will take. And the No campaign stressed that if you don't know what form it will take, if you don't know, vote no. Well, I mean, that's again misleading because you do know what's in the amendment. You know what you're putting into the Constitution. Okay, so if you took the argument of don't know, vote no, meaning you have to vote no if you don't know how Parliament will exercise a power in the future 
then that would mean we would not, well, for starters, we would never have had federation. We'd be a whole lot of squabbling colonies still. But it also mean that all the other amendments that we make, which give parliament power, would never have been passed. So if any of your listeners out there have ever benefited from unemployment benefits or family allowances or allowances to students or have ever benefited from Medicare or any of those sorts of things, that comes because the people, when they voted in 1946 to approve a referendum to allow the Commonwealth Parliament to make those laws, they didn't know every detail of what law the parliament was going to make in the future. They didn't know all the terms and conditions that were going to be put on unemployment benefits. They didn't know what the amount of unemployment benefits was going to be in the future, but they still voted to allow parliament to do that because that's part of our democratic process. And if in future parliament makes a law you don't like, well, of course, you use the democratic process and you can chuck out the government and put in someone else. This notion that you don't know and therefore can't vote for something in the Constitution if it gives Parliament a power because you don't know how Parliament's going to exercise that power on every single occasion in the future is, is, is a silly argument because it's denying the democratic system where we always have to rely on Parliament making laws. Well, there is concern that because the voice is embedded in the Constitution, there could be unintended consequences down the track. You don't know how the High Court will interpret its powers or or its place in the Constitution. First of all, that's the case with anything in the Constitution. I mean, no one can 100% guarantee anything about what's in the Constitution, but we do know that the High Court is required to interpret the words that you put in there. And so you put in words that have as clear and direct a meaning as you possibly can. And a lot of work has gone into this amendment to keep the amendment clear and simple. And I do encourage people to read the words. The second thing is that if there is any ambiguity in the words, then the High Court can look to things like intention And so in this particular case, it's been made very clear what the intention of those who framed the amendment was. And that's made clear through materials like the explanatory memorandum, the second reading speech. We've got the Solicitor General's opinion, got a whole lot of material that show, for example, that there is no intention for a legal obligation to the voice to be consulted in advance of governments making any decisions. There's no intention that the government be required to give effect to the voice, that the voice is simply an advisory body that can make representations, and that's it. Everything else is left to politics and no legal obligations. Now, that's been made very clear in the intention. So all of those people who are raising these kinds of concerns that the High Court is going to interpret it in a way that prevents government from being able to operate in the future, they have to believe that the High Court will ignore the words that they're trying to interpret, will reject the clearly expressed intention of the people who frame those words, and will deliberately act in a way to undermine the ability of government to operate. Now, frankly, I just don't believe that. I think it's a nonsense suggestion, but, you know, um, that's what people are suggesting. And what's the weight of opinion from constitutional experts on that point? Well, the weight of opinion is that it's not a constitutionally risky exercise, that the the amendment itself is clear, the intention behind it is clear, that the High Court will act as it always has in an appropriate way in interpreting 
the constitution. And so the, the, the vast weight of opinion amongst constitutional lawyers and former judges, etc., is that uh, these kinds of concerns that are raised by people are extreme concerns that are extremely unlikely to ever come to pass. Okay, so you've got people like uh, former Chief Justice uh, Robert French, who gave an address to the National Press Club last week. You've got uh, former Chief Justice Murray Gleeson. You've got former High Court Justice Ken Hayne there in that group. But on the other hand, you do have other people like Ian Callanan, former Justice of the High Court, and Nicholas Hasluck, former WA Supreme Court, and Terence Cole from the New South Wales Supreme Court. They have a different view. There are some people who have raised concerns, but their concerns are about extreme possibilities. And, you know, a lot of this is about assessment of risk. We can say, well, we shouldn't do something if there is any risk at all. But, you know, if if we lived in that way, we'd say, right, well, we can never walk outside the door because there's a risk we'll get run over. The, The reality is there are always risks in anything, but you need to be sensible in addressing those risks. And um, in this particular proposal, people take the view that to the extent that there is any risk, it is so remote that it's not one that we should be concerned about. There is also the argument that the voice will divide Australians. The voice undermines equality of citizenship. It gives one community access to government decision-making processes that other Australians don't have. Yeah, I find that quite bizarre. Um, Do people not understand that everyone is able to make representations to Parliament and to the government, of course we all can, and and many of us do. So, you know, people can do it, organisations can do it too. But but they uh, won't be they won't be the right to do so will not be embedded in the constitution and and the 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 basis upon which that right is given will not be based on a person's um status as a First Nations person. Well, first of all, just to be clear, the amendment itself um, creates a body and it's the body that makes the representation. It's not an Indigenous person based on their race making the representation. It's a body that makes the representation. So um, but so it's not giving every Indigenous person a special right that nobody else has. Every single person has the right to be able to uh, make representations to Parliament and the executive government, and that's protected by the Constitution, just as the voice is able to make those representations and it's protected by the Constitution. So I don't see the difference. Um, the effect and the outcome is exactly the same from a legal point of view. The difference might well be one of influence. The voice might be more influential because it has behind it the support of the Australian people if they vote to approve it in a referendum. So that might give it more influence, but that's very different to legal power. The Australian Human Rights Commissioner, Lorraine Finlay, who's someone with expertise in both constitutional and and human rights law, has stated that the voice, quote, inserts race into the constitution in a way that undermines the foundational human rights principles of equality and non-discrimination and creates constitutional uncertainty in terms of its interpretation and operation. What's your response? Well, look, I disagree. So... To give you a good example here, let's go back and look at the McCloy case from the High Court. And in that case, the High Court was looking at the implied freedom of political communication and it identified a basic principle um, in Australia about everybody having an equal opportunity to participate in the system of representative government in Australia. 
And it said that for those purposes, it may well be necessary that some voices are quietened in order to be able to allow other people to have the opportunity to be heard. And so that was in the context of can you put caps, for example, on political donations and political expenditure in order to stop people who are really rich from being able to buy all the opportunities to be heard. And the High Court says, yes, that that's consistent with the principles under the Constitution. And in doing so, they quoted a case, a Canadian case called Harper, where the judge said there are two ways of dealing with this problem about inequality in the people's ability to participate in the system. One is to give a voice, and actually use that term, to give a voice to those people who wouldn't otherwise be heard, to raise them up to being in a position where they can be heard. And the other is to put limits on, to quieten the voices of some so that others can be heard. And and that's precisely what we're doing here. That's why it's consistent with the Constitution, because what we're doing is giving a voice to those who have found it difficult to fully participate in the system to be heard, so bringing them up to allow them to be heard on an equal basis with everybody else. And so, you know, from that point of view, if you look at it from a constitutional basis, the proposal for the the voice referendum is completely consistent with the High Court's jurisprudence. But, but of course, under the amendment, Parliament can make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures. So if the government doesn't like it, it will be able to gut it and make something that it likes more. So the argument that it will be too powerful is also the argument that it will not be powerful. I look, at that's absolutely true, that the, the parliament will be able to change it. It's important that it can change it because that's a necessary safety valve in case the voice is not functioning properly. You want parliament to be able to come in and change it to make it work more effectively. That's certainly the case. And both sides of parliament have said consistently that they want to improve the outcomes for Indigenous people. Both sides of Parliament have said consistently that what we've been doing so far has failed. Both sides have said consistently we've wasted a lot of money. So both sides need to work to try and get some kind of useful, sensible advice to make sure that Indigenous policies operate properly on the ground, drawing advice from those people who know how they have been failing and can give advice to help governments work out how they can make them more effective. These arguments um, may be incendiary, but you've got to look at them realistically. Uh, If the voice is created and it makes some representations to the government in the future, and under the democratic system, the parliament and the government can decide whether that's useful information they've been given, and yes, it would be a good idea to change that law, or actually, no, it's not a good idea to change that law. Does that make any difference to me and my status as an Australian citizen? Does it divide me from anyone else that someone has just had a say and the government's responded to it? And I think the argument's just nonsense. Of course, it doesn't make any difference um, to my citizenship and divide me from anybody else. Finally, Antwemi, what does this referendum tell us about the Australian constitution? Well, look, it's it's likely to tell us that it's very, very, very hard to change the constitution. That worries me a bit. Um, I start seeing this stuff in the newspapers about the constitution being a sacred document and never being able to be changed. 
That in itself has risks. I think it is a big concern if we end up with a constitution that's frozen in time that we can't change. Um, you know, in practice around the world, when a constitution becomes frozen and out of date with the world that it, it operates in, it becomes brittle. And when there's ever any stress on it, it does tend to break. We want a constitution that remains sufficiently flexible and suited to the times that we live in to ensure that it endures. So I think it's a concerning prospect for the constitution to be treated as something that can't be changed uh, and that is effectively frozen in time. I think that one of the real risks of a no vote will be that we just don't hold referendums again, that people, that politicians give up on trying to change the constitution. And the effect then is, you know, basically you cede all your popular sovereignty to the High Court and say to the High Court, well, you interpret the Constitution to update it because we can't do it. Uh, as a Democrat, I'd much prefer the Australian people to do their job and to change it from time to time when necessary. Uh, so I, I hope we still have that opportunity in the future, but I fear that a message that might be being sent to politicians by referendums these days is that people are just not prepared to contemplate change. They see risk in any kind of change and they're opposed to facing that kind of risk. And the consequence is we end up in an even more risky position of a constitution that's frozen and doesn't meet the needs of the Australian people and that therefore fails at some future point when we have a crisis, I think that would be a very bad outcome. Professor Antwumi, uh, University of Sydney constitutional law expert, uh, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app. There are new calls for pill testing to be introduced in New South Wales after two men in their 20s died of suspected drug overdoses following the recent Knockout Music Festival. It was one of three Sydney events that in just one weekend saw 20 people hospitalised and dozens more arrested for drug possession. Gino Vumbaka is from Pill Testing Australia, an organisation involved in conducting government-funded drug testing in the ACT. Pill testing is where people come to a service like ours and they would provide a very small sample of the substance they're about to consume. We would analyse it and talk to them about a range of health and harm impacts and explain to them exactly what it is they're about to consume and what the potential harms of that may be. And that can be either at a standalone permanent facility or at, say, a stall at a music festival. We'll come back and talk about how pill testing works in detail in a moment. Recently, a coroner in Victoria called for pill testing. Whose death was being investigated? There have been a number of coronal investigations in Victoria, as you may be aware, but the latest one was uh, involving a person who I think resided in Canberra, ACT, and would travel down for a festival in Victoria, and the coroner investigated that and came to some conclusions, which we obviously would agree with, that Although there's no guarantee that drug checking or pill testing service would have potentially uh, averted this loss of life, there's no guarantee it would have happened, but it certainly he wasn't afforded the opportunity to, to learn more about what he was going to take and the potential consequences of that by a drug 
checking service not being available at the festival. This young man, I think he died after ingesting a drug, an MDMA pill known as a Blue Punisher, which the name has some reference to a a comic book. He was taken to hospital with multi-organ failure and brain swelling and he died four days later. And, And as you say, Coroner John Cain said, quote, it is impossible to know had a drug checking service existed, the man would have submitted a sample for testing But notwithstanding this, quote, a drug testing service would have at least created the opportunity for him to do so and for him to receive tailored harm reduction information from a drug checking facility. This is not the first time coroners in various parts of the country have called for pill testing. It's become quite a common call, hasn't it, from these people who are investigating deaths? It has. uh, In Victoria, coroner Spanos also after investigating, I think, the deaths of four or five young people had uh, called for pill testing services to be made available at festivals. There have been previous ones. Uh, another coroner had requested in two other previous coronal investigations in Victoria. Then you have the coronal investigation in New South Wales, Harriet Graham calling on pill testing when she investigated five young people's deaths at festivals. It's because the evidence is pretty clear now, Damien, that what the pill testing service that we've been able to provide show in Australia has done is provide an opportunity for people to know more about what they're going to do and the potential harms, and more importantly at some levels, what to do if something arises, an adverse outcome arises, you know, that someone runs into difficulty, how to act and how to act quickly to ensure that that person gets to the right people as soon as possible. Okay, so where is pill testing currently taking place and how does it work? Well, apart from Canberra, two nights a week that we run with our partners at CanTest, uh, Direction and Karma, it operates in New Zealand. It's been actually formally endorsed by the national government in New Zealand um, and been operating there, I think, uh, over a year or so now. Been running in Switzerland and some other European countries uh, probably since the mid-90s. Uh, late 90s, so over 20 years. Uh, UK has had it operating there, though it's sort of been pulled back a little by the Home Office in more recent times. But there's a lot of evidence from around the world, as well as uh, the independent evaluations that have been conducted on our service in the ACT. And what it shows is that we can have an impact on the level of harm, that people, the more they understand, then the better decisions they make about what they're about to consume, as simple as that. Let's talk about pill testing in Canberra. It takes place both at music festivals and also at a permanent fixed site called the CanTest facility. What research has been done into their performance? In terms of festivals, which we went into abeyance because of COVID, but we're hoping to kick back up again uh, shortly with that and certainly in the, we will be in the next uh, six months we'll be operating again at Canberra festivals. That was independently evaluated by the Australian National University And they did follow-up interviews with people who were happy to give their contact details to show that we actually had a more than just an impact on the day, that people learning more about what the drugs they consume and the impact they can have sought more information and and actually moderated, in some cases, their drug use as a result of the information they received from our team. At CanTest, we operate two nights a week in Canberra, and we've tested probably over a 1,000 samples now in the 12 months. And a lot of information has gone to people, around 10 to 15% are discarding their their substances on finding what's actually in them. We've had put out a few public health alerts on a couple of 
occasions where we've found a, quite a toxic substance has been in circulation in some pills that are being purchased. Uh, and so the government has extended can test for another 12 months because you know this is having a quite a measurable positive public health outcome. And what does the evidence say when people are informed about the contents of the drug? How do they respond? Do, do people often abandon the drug or not consume it? Generally what happens is around, on average now around 20%, I would say, across festivals and the fixed site would abandon. We have an amnesty bin so they can dispose of it, would dispose of it and not consume it at all. A lot of others say they will moderate what they take, and in which case if we say, for instance, and this refers to the coronial investigation of Mr P with the Blue Punisher, it's very high-purity MDMA. So we can identify that and people then will moderate their intake of that drug, either reduce the amount they take or have a much longer period of time between any top-ups you know, or reuse of that drug. So they actually adjust their drug-using behaviour to meet the advice they've received from us. I mean, we never tell people it's safe to use a drug or how to use a drug. We're more saying these are the harms that can happen. And if you're going to use this drug, then you need to mitigate some of the risk by at least undertaking some of these things. But let's be clear, drug taking is never safe. Just exactly. About, it's, exactly. It's, it's, so it's about um, you know informing people of the risks. Yes. And this is one of the things we try and counter in terms of misinformation about what we do. We would never tell anyone it's safe to use a drug. We don't tell that to people because there is no safe level of use. But I think if you just think about it, particularly in a festival setting, people have gone through in New South Wales on the AC, but uh, sniffer dogs, there are police there, there are security, and then they've gone through and they're now in the festival. That's someone who's pretty committed to using that substance or the drug that they've bought. So in our mind, they're actually committed to using it. So our job is to let them know what those risks are. And, in some, and as I said, 20% of the time, they'll discard it and not use it. A majority will mitigate it and others will proceed as they as they wish. So we have a system up and running in Canberra. What other jurisdictions in Australia have or are considering pill testing? Queensland has announced that they'll be introducing a trial of fixed site and festival-based testing and there's a tender, I think it's just closed actually, but a, a tender in place and that I think they're looking at uh, early next year and getting something going in Queensland, which is great. New South Wales, there's obviously a lot of pressure at the moment, given what's happened in the uh, recently. When governments want to trial or implement pill testing, does it require specific legislation? The advice we got very early in discussion with the ACT government and also the federal government at the time was looking into it, was that there does need to be legislation or regulation. I mean, basically, this is a policy decision. The reason being is is nothing illegal occurring because we take very small samples, inconsequential samples of the drug. So there's no issue around possessing that drug because it's so small. There's no aiding and abetting because there's uh, protocols in place to say that no drug use is safe and advising people best not to use a particular drug. So there are no legal impediments to introducing pill testing other than a policy decision. So every jurisdiction, as far as I'm aware, and it, it is really jurisdictionally based because that's often under the Drug Misuse and Trafficking Acts that exist, they can, with the stroke of a pen policy, decide to allow trials of pill testing and not require a, an act of parliament to do that. And has it proven to be controversial in Canberra? Is there ongoing debate about whether or not to continue with the CanTest program? Uh, the exact opposite. The exact opposite. In the last week, we've had 
front page articles and editorials in the Canberra Times supporting pill testing, the, the government uh, reiterating their support for it. And our polling, recent polling we've done nationally through a, as part of a, a broader social surveys attitude study uh, of Australia, support for pill testing in the ACT now runs between 90 and 95% in that survey. And that's after, obviously, we've been operating. And you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in Canberra who thinks it's a bad idea. Gino Vumbaka, President of Harm Reduction Australia and Pill Testing Australia, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, Damien. That's The Law Report for this week. Don't forget you can follow us on the ABC Listen app. A big thanks to producer Christina Kukolia and also to sound engineer Elise Simons. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.